Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And this week will be the first time the new federal parliament sits and the first time in almost a decade Labor will be on the government benches. And the government has set out a sizeable agenda for the first sitting weeks, including legislating the 43% emissions reduction target Australia has committed to achieve by 2030. And to speak about this and also the State of Environment report that was released last week, Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth is with us. And Cam, it seems really poignant, doesn't it, that we're... We're um, seeing the government speaking environment and climate when around the world we've got extreme weather events playing out, not just in places where we're familiar with wildfires like Greece, but extreme weather in the UK and Ireland. Um, yeah, I'd be interested in your thoughts on on the sort of timing and the and the yeah the the poignancy of the, these moments. Yes, um, the image that really struck in my mind was there was some fires in England uh, that you could see that were taken across a busy expressway, a, a freeway, and it looked like Southern California, which burns all the time. And then I saw some images of fires in Ireland. So the UK does have wildfire, but you know it's now off the scale. But the fact that Ireland is starting to burn is kind of mind-boggling. So. Um, there's always a good time to talk about climate when we've wasted a decade or so under the previous government, but certainly it does feel very poignant at present. Thousands of people are dying in places like France and Spain because of the heat waves. We've got the droughts, we've got the fires just right across, uh, not only in Western Europe, but also in Siberia and Alaska. Big parts of Alaska at present are at their highest uh, preparation level. So what we would know as a code red level, you know, on those really bad days in summer, they've been at a level five for quite some time because it's so dry up there. So, yes, it is a very good time to bring the focus domestically back onto climate change and what's going to happen in Parliament this week. Absolutely. And, and so the new Labor government has pledged to, to commit to a 43% reduction in, in emissions by 2030. What is the importance of, of putting that into legislation, Cam, that, that 43% target? Unfortunately, when you get changes in government, often um, if the new government uh, gets in and they're climate deniers, they'll just basically burn all the furniture. So if you legislate targets, it's harder to get rid of them. Um, so it's a little bit of an investment in the future, but it is also a sign that we are going to take it very seriously. So I think it is they, they could act today you know, to implement those targets if they wanted to, but I think enshrining it into legislation is really important in terms of its symbolic power of saying we are now getting on with this. And the fact that it's a top-order issue, um, Parliament, you know, sitting this week and they'll have a couple of days of first speeches and, you know, ceremony and all the stuff they do to open a new Parliament and then they're going to get down to the legislation potentially as early as Wednesday. Yeah, and the symbolicness, the symbolicness, is that a word? Um, it's, I mean, I can see what, what you're saying there, and I, I wonder also is there part of a, a, a bit of a flushing out going on that Labor, you know, that the coalition looks like both Liberal and the Nats will vote against it. They're seeing negotiations with the so-called Teal candidates, the independents, community independents, and, and the Greens as well. Is there a sort of a, yeah, flushing out of position going on here too, Cam, do you think? Oh, 
Oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I think there's something like 35 new lower house MPs. Um, the government, the ALP, has majority in the lower house, and that's where most of the community campaign uh, candidates, the, the so-called teals, are. There is one in the ACT in the Senate, David Pocock, which is really fantastic, but I think there's a lot of you know, it's like all the kids in the school ground, you know, first year at school, and there's just going to be a little bit of time of everyone fussing each other out and working out what the dynamics are. So I think there's a lot of theatre at play here. But what's really important, of course, is unfortunately, so in Victoria, the um, uh, a, a right-winger has basically been pre-selected over someone that understands climate change in the Victorian opposition in terms of pre-selection. The head of the Nationals, Bridget McKenzie, has come out and said she's very unlikely to vote for the legislation. Like still, there was a very clear signal from voters in the May federal election that people were really angry at the lack of action over the last nine years. And the ALP have heard that message. The Greens have benefited from that message. They went up three members and now have 12 senators. We've got the, the seven uh, climate independents that are in there. It's like everyone got that memo except for the coalition and it's like they're determined to go backwards and vote against anything that's meaningful. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of positioning happening this week and a lot of, you know, people talking to their base, uh, you know, in good, bad or ugly, you know, are they talking back to the troglodyte base or are they talking back to a base that actually understands the need for climate action? So, yes, there will be a lot of theatre this week, uh, but hopefully with negotiations going on around the 43% target legislation, hopefully that starts to move forward. Yeah, and then we've got this current parliamentary make-up for, for the, you know, roughly the next three years or so, and, and I mean, you mentioned, Cam, that it doesn't necessarily require legislation to, you know, rapidly speed up and, and become more ambitious in terms of emissions reductions and, and the like. But how do you imagine this might play out, particularly in the Senate, where the government will need presumably the support of the Greens and, and at least one crossbencher? How do you imagine that sort of final piece of legislation might look, with the Greens obviously pushing for a much more ambitious target and, and also talking more about the importance of, of making it clear that 43% reduction by 2030 is very much a floor, not a ceiling. Absolutely, yes. So there is that uh, tension that's going on and the Greens are in negotiations clearly uh, and trying to get the best deal in exchange for their support for the 43% target. Just as a benchmark, the previous government had 26 to 28%. The ALP are proposing 43%, but most environmental groups such as Friends of the USA, we need a minimum of 75%. So it's still well short um, of where we need to be, but thank goodness that you know, the, the impasse of the last near decade is over. Um, so they do need the Greens and they do need probably David Pocock um, and then, you know, possibly one of the others if, you know, for whatever reason they can't do a deal with David. And the Greens are negotiating and that will be getting probably a moratorium on all new coal and gas projects, no public money to go into further development of new fossil gas uh, uh, developments such as in the Beedaloo Basin in the Northern Territory and the thing that underscores all this is the climate science makes it very clear that we cannot have new fossil fuel developments from now if we want to have a hope of holding warming to um, you know close to 1.5 degrees warming overall so there is a lot of stake uh, but I think there's also a desire to see you know let's, let's not let the, the perfect get in the way of the practical you know let's get this 
uh, 43% through with the best possible deal we can and let's, let's just keep pushing and keep ratcheting it up. We have a really important opportunity at the end of this year which will be the Conference of Parties on Climate Change that happens uh, in Egypt this year, COP27, and at that um, meeting, Australia, amongst other nations, will need to give an update on their target, their ambition, so we can use the next few months if we can get this legislation through to then, you know, get them to push it up from a from a, a floor level of 43 to something that's more ambitious and more consistent with the science. And, that, and that's one thing that, that the new minister, Chris Bowen, has been saying, that there's already a ratchet, um, as it's called, in the Paris Agreement that countries are required to keep coming back and improving on their last commitments to that agreement and that that's implied uh, in the legislation. It doesn't need to be written in, um, so to speak. And so that's uh, what he's saying about why they're not including that language there. I mean, do you think that that will be, be remain an issue in, in the negotiations, Cam, that to explicitly say we are ratcheting and do you think that they're likely to take more than 43% to Egypt at the end of the year, the Labor government? You would have to hope so. Um, obviously, the ALP are in you know, a difficult moment now where they feel they have a mandate for 43%. They have a resounding mandate. They control the lower house outright. And so the, you know, they're hesitant to go too much further. They've got the real-life dilemma of, I think there's something like 27 significant coal, oil and gas projects you know, that are on the cards at present that will need to be assessed and approved. So that's a bit of a poison chalice for them. And already the Environment Minister has come out and said, that, look, it's not really practical to... you know stop all of these. Obviously those that are listening to the science, such as the Greens, will be pushing for more. So I think uh, you know, this is a journey. We have wasted nine years that we didn't, we, we couldn't afford to waste it, but we did. And that was because climate deniers and blockers were basically in charge of the country. And now at least we have forward movement. I think, you know, personally I feel a bit pragmatic on this. Let's just get forward movement and hope that that creates momentum. And, you know, as we uh, get to higher levels of um, renewables in the mix and we get more storage in the mix and we get more energy efficiency in there, We'll realise there's a lot of jobs in it and the sky won't fall and all the fear campaigns that will be run out by the Conservatives in coming weeks, you know, actually don't come true and that more renewables will bring down electricity prices. But we are in that really difficult moment of which way do they go uh, in terms of, you know, do they go to increased ambition or do they try and hold the line? And then, of course, you've just got sheer party politics. You know, you've got a whole bunch of parties. You've got independents on the crossbench. You know, everyone to a degree is looking after their patch and speaking to their base. So it is a very a beautifully complex uh, new federal parliament that um, this government has stepped into. Absolutely. Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth is our guest this morning. And, and against that backdrop, Cam, we, we got wind or we heard all about the State of the Environment report um, that came out last week. And, and, and you know, Tanya Plibersek spoke at length about it. It makes for pretty harrowing reading. I mean, spells out the related threats of deforestation, invasive species, land and reef degradation due to climate change, issues around water quality and availability and, you know, more species being added to the, the endangered list as well. There's a real lot there. What did you make of, of what we heard from the Environment Minister last week? The first thing was I just felt relief that she acknowledged the depth of the scale of the problem. We've been getting these reports roughly every five years since 1995 and pretty much all the indicators are going the wrong way. You know, if you were driving a car and the temperature, you know, sign on your engine just kept, kept going up, the 
some point we could pull over to do something about it. And we've just, it's like we've been putting our foot to the floor all these years in spite of the data that's coming in. I'm really grateful that we have a minister that's said, look, this is really serious and we need to do serious things about this and this is not sustainable. The previous government actually sat on this report for many months. It didn't. It wasn't released until they came out of power, and that makes me really angry that they were willing to hide the data from the community. And, you know, as you said, it is really grim reading. Um, in the last report, we had 1,774 animal and plant species that were um, at risk of extinction. Now we have 1,918, so it's gone up by roughly 200 just since the last report. Um, some of the top order stuff, it was interesting that air quality has become a real issue because of the bushfires. Uh, so that was a, you know, a, a kind of a, a strong thing that came out in this report. Um, it looks at land, air quality, coast biodiversity, uh, marine, uh, marine ecosystems and the whole impacts of heat waves and how ecosystems are changing. That was really apparent. Um, and the other thing that really jumped out at me was um, that on the coast, the impacts of climate change are now kind of outweighing the impacts of population growth. We know a lot of our coastal areas are, you know, becoming popular in terms of human habitation. Climate change impacts are actually trumping that. And then the, the impact of extreme events, droughts, floods, heat waves, bushfires was really clear in this and the signal coming from climate change. And then the other thing that was good was there was a strong um, level of input around how we value traditional knowledge, First Nation knowledge in managing our landscapes. So that was a very good step forward, I thought. Yeah, really interesting. And I, I missed some of those points and I, I'm looking forward to reading the whole report um, rather than just the, I was flicking through it. And it's, it's yeah, it's difficult to read, but we, we need to face these things because they're happening. And I mean, one thing that, that stood out to me, and this crosses both um, Labor and Liberal governments is that uh, a lot of the land clearing, particularly uh, habitat used by threatened species or depended on by them, was not being referred to the existing um, environmental protection legislation called the EPBC Act. And I wonder, Cam, is this now in the spotlight? Will we see the new Labor government have a look at this legislation and see why it's been dodged or you know, how effective has it been or will it be in protecting the environment when we're seeing so much devastation. Yes, so the EPBC laws, which is the, the amalgamation of the federal environmental laws, was created, I think, when John Howard was Prime Minister and he was, you know, hardly a friend of the environment and so the laws were always flawed and were criticised for years and years by environmentalists and environmental lawyers. Recently there was a review of the laws which was called the Samuel Review and the new Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, has said very clearly she will go and look at those recommendations and the intention is to implement most of those recommendations. Our federal laws are broken when it comes to environmental protection and they need to be rebuilt from the ground up. We've also seen a whittling back of the public service in regards to the environment federally in recent years and that's another problem but we need to build an infrastructure that has triggers that will actually trigger major developments to be thoroughly assessed and hopefully knocked back when they have unacceptable 
acceptable environmental impact. So that's really important. In Australia, because we are a federation of states and territories, it is kind of complex because a lot of decisions are taken around land use, at least, at the state or, or territory level. So here in Victoria, you know, it's great that we've got this review of the federal laws, but we're still logging our forests unsustainably and we need to radically bring forward that phase-out that we have of native forest logging, which at this point is, is due to finish by 2030. It's just not sustainable. We need to bring it forward. So rewriting the federal laws won't solve our problems, but they are a very, very good start. Cam, always good to hear your voice, and we'll catch you again in um, roughly a month's time. Thanks heaps. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Last week, Victoria's anti-corruption body and ombudsman released a damning report into branch stacking in state labour. This came two years after revelations were first aired by The Age and 60 Minutes about the actions of moderate Labor MP Adam Somirek and others to shore up their power through improper means. The Andrews government has pledged to bring in or institute all 21 of the report's recommendations to bolster political integrity. But some might question why these practices, which were believed to be an open secret, were allowed to continue for so long. Nick McKenzie is the journalist who first broke the story in 2020. He's a multi-award winning journalist with The Age and Sydney Morning Herald and joins us now on the line. Hey, Nick, great to have you on Triple R. Good morning, guys. Morning. So this has been a really thorough investigation by IBAC and the Victorian Ombudsman. What do you make of the findings? I mean, they're, they're to be expected. We, we knew that uh, the disgraced politician Adam Sumurek and some of his cronies were, were up to this behaviour, they were basically um, abusing public resources to branch back and engage in other dodgy political practices to, to grow political power. Uh, we knew this because there were secret cameras in, in an office uh, and we caught Somirak in the act doing this in, in great detail. The, the good thing about what the Ombudsman uh, and the IBAC has done, though, is added to that uh, phone taps, uh, information gained through coercive questioning, through search warrants, to build an undeniable picture of the scale and extent of the, of the political rorting. So, so to make it sort of undeniable, I mean, up until a point, I think people like Somirak were saying nothing to see here or it's all a beat-up. So that's, that's no longer possible to say. Uh, and as a result of sort of amassing that evidence, they placed a really powerful case for reform, which the government has now accepted. Now, this, the cynics out there would say the only reason the Andrews government has done that is because it's an election year. Uh, it's probably true, um, but they have done it, and we're going to have, hopefully, a cleaner parliament than we've ever had before once the reforms are in place. Uh, and this sort of rorting will hopefully be... Um, it's not going to be on the way out. It's always going to be there to an, to an extent, but there'll be less of it. Yeah, and, I mean, what are the most significant findings, in your view, um, when, when you have a look at the, the 21 that they put forward, uh, Nick? In terms of recommendations, uh, I I guess you look at it in two ways. There's there's changes to make rorting more difficult. When I say rorting, what's been going on both in the Coalition and Labor forever is MPs get election office budgets, uh, they get to hire staff, and on all sides of Parliament, these dodgy polys have been using their staff which we pay for, taxpayers pay for, to engage in you know, dodgy political activity like brand stacking and, and you know, any other sort of, of malfeasance. And that's basically you know, committing wrongdoing on the public purse. So the changes that are going to be recommended and have been backed by the Andrews government will make doing that 
uh, more unlawful. So at the moment, it's been a bit of a grey area of the law. So if you do it, you'll, it, it will become uh, more clearly over the line in terms of, of legality. But more broadly, the changes that will be implemented uh, go to culture. So things like a parliamentary ethics commissioner, someone who can look at ethical issues that arise in Parliament. A politician gets offered something, they're, not, they're wondering whether they should do a favour, or and this sort of person can advise them, but also uh, look at potential breaches and and say to the Parliament, oh, there should be action taken in respect of these breaches. Also, a parliamentary committee, ethics parliamentary committee, is going to be aimed at uh, looking at questions of ethics and integrity. So really trying to reframe the way our Parliament works to put our integrity and ethics at the centre of, of some of it. Now, yeah, it sounds a bit washy, I guess, and that's the problem. We can have all the, the best laws and, and people going around uh, pushing them as, as we want. At the end of the day, politics is a pretty dirty business nowadays, and so yeah, will there be change? Yes. Is it welcome? Absolutely. Will we have a cleaner form of politics? Maybe a little. Uh, will there still be grubbiness? Yes, of course. And, I mean, we only learned about all this from you know, your reporting, which was built on, on phone taps and, and whistleblowers going public with the sorts of things that were going on, um, kind of, you know, particularly in relation to the moderate um, faction within state Labor, but it took this to, to really spark the joint IBAC and Ombudsman inquiry. And it's interesting reading the report that they say the kinds of things they looked into is not normally within their purview, that that's the kind of thing that you know should be dealt with by Parliament or some kind of parliamentary committee. So what do you make of just the, the high bar, I suppose, that seems to be set for properly investigating some of this, this rotting and, and you know grey corruption or, or very real corruption that was exposed um, through this process? Well, their point about grey corruption, the fact that um, both the IBAC and the Ombudsman have limited resources, uh, what they're saying, you know, the sort of stuff that, that was going on, in some respects it's, um, uh, if I could use a crude term, relatively pissy corruption. Uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah, a guy admitted to stealing $14,000 worth of stamps to give the stamps to a politician who admitted to you know, things to send, to send out to help them get re-elected. Uh, 14 grand in and of itself is not a huge amount of money. Yeah, there was lots of acts like this across the board, but it was all sort of low-level low level grubbiness. And, and I think the, the point that the Ombudsman and the IBAC were making was we're there to, to look at really serious corruption idea. I think about um, police corruption where, where there's a policeman drug trafficking or, or a public official who's taken a million bucks in bribes. And that's, that's the really, really serious stuff. This, this sort of malfeasance... Uh, it, it should be looked at because it's absolutely corrosive. It really hurts democracy, etc. But, uh, it, you know, it is low level. And really, the responsibility is on the politicians and parliament itself. Uh, get your house into order. And, and the point being as well that everyone knows this has been going on, especially within the Labor Party. It's been an open secret that Somirek built his power through branch stacking and, and odious conduct. Now, uh, we blew it open through pretty extraordinary means. There was uh, secret camera vision, and you know, you literally you could see him doing the wrong thing and hear him talking about doing the wrong thing. So no one could, could hide anymore after that. But before we did that, everyone knew that there was something rotten going on from the Premier down, and it was accommodated because it was saying, well, that's part of the whole Labor Party, unfortunately. The Labor Party is sort of fabric. You do have this branch stacking. You do have some people who are up to no good. Uh, and so again, the, the point of the integrity agency is, is, is guys, yeah, sort your own house out. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be being told to do the right thing. Just do it. Uh, and um, and that's that's. I mean, the, the biggest question for the premier out of all this, Daniel Andrews, is, well, 
you knew it was going on. Yeah, you didn't have perhaps the smoking gun proof that, that we dug up as journos and the, and the IBAC and Ombudsman found, but you knew the system was rotten and you knew who were the big players. Uh, so why, why did you allow them into your cabinet? Why did you endorse them? Why did you give them political cover? And yet, it's great you sacked them. It's great you've reacted by uh, accepting the recommendations, but Jesus taken a long time. Yeah. Is there evidence that Jenny Macklin and Steve Brax that the Premier's pointed to as, uh, you know, having a look at cleaning up the branches? Is there evidence that they've made inroads in that in Victoria, Nick? I, I think so. I mean, one of the heartening things about being... You look at a journalist when you do work, and most of what we do is just ignore it all, all the time. That's the life of the journal. That's fair enough. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you want you want your work to have impact as well. You want, you want to, to make the a slightly better place. Um, that's why we do journalism. And what, what I hear just on the ground from people I know in the Labor Party is it's harder to branch stack. Now, why is it a good thing? Um, and, it's, and it's harder to, to, uh, to do the dodgy stuff that was pretty widespread in some, some political offices. That's a good thing because it's becoming more of a meritocracy. So the ideal young Labor person who gets in there because they want to make a difference, they want to have a, a genuine political career, they're honest, they're well-intentioned. In the past, that person may not have thrived because they weren't prepared to, to play the, the dodgy games. And, and that's a tragedy. And, and the, the saddest thing about the IBAC investigation is all these young you know, people in their 20s and, and, um, and early 30s who had decided to commit their lives uh, to Labor or give it a crack. They believed in, in, in um, the Labor ideal. Uh, only to be confronted with this uh, revolting political machine which required them to engage in wrongdoing. Uh, and that is a leave or end up being part of the wrongdoing and blow up their own lives and careers. And we saw people, um, that, that, that happening to people. So it is nice to hear, especially younger people in Labor Party circles, saying, no, the place is cleaned up. There's not so much wrongdoing anymore. Um, the branch stack is, uh, at the moment, sort of hiding under the rocks. And that's got to be a good thing, because we want good people getting to politics and staying in politics. I mean, across, obviously, both, both sides of the aisle. Speaking with investigative journalist with the Age and Sydney Morning Herald, Nick McKenzie, all about the recent findings from IBAC and the Victorian Ombudsman into branch stacking and associated activities within the moderate faction of Victorian Labor. And just on, on that kind of, I suppose, you know, corrupting influence that, that some particularly young Labor members have spoken about when they, you know, have become part of the, the, the party machine and then done these sort of dodgy branch stacking practices and, and you know, performed, um, uh, you know, activities that, that shouldn't really be their jobs for sort of, you know, factional um, power mongering. Do you have much of a sense of, of whether they sort of attempted have, to speak up and, and, you know, I suppose make their voice known to people that they were uncomfortable with some of the things they were being asked to do? Well, very few did speak up. Uh, I mean, ultimately, uh, our work exposing it and then the IVAC's work exposing it was based on whistleblowers. So there were a few people within Labor who... Uh, took the pretty extraordinary step to, to to help journalists and expose it. And, you know, I'll be in their debt forever. And what's happened to these people? Well, they've been chewed up and spat out by the system. So it's an ugly, ugly path for them. I don't hold lots of other people for not speaking up. Um, you know, I don't hold them to blame because it's very, very hard to speak up and to, to blow up the system because you blow up, you blow up yourself along the way. Uh, and, and often... Um, you know, there's there's people that you'll hurt by speaking up, and and because there's there's colleagues who've done the wrong thing, uh, etc. So extremely difficult for uh, for whistleblowers to to take that step to to contact. But that that's what happened. That's the only reason the scandal emerges because good people in Labor 
you'd think there's still a ascendant. There's more good people than bad people, obviously. But the good people decided to rock the boat uh, and to take on uh, the factional warlords and the, the pockets of entrenched corruption and, and abuse of power, uh, which is pretty pretty amazing. And yeah. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, the Labor Party has a long memory as well. It's a bit like the Mafia. Um, those people will always be regarded now as, as probably the suspected whistleblowers and they'll have a target on the, on the head for the rest of their, uh, of their lives because, you know, the Labor Party values loyalty above all else, even if it's loyalty to, 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 to protect corruption, which is... Which is and and that's, that's, that's political parties across the board, perhaps. Uh, but it's also a fact, and that makes that makes speaking up a, a you know a, a life-changing event. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, look, we rely on this government, the Victorian government, uh, to get us through the health crisis. And I think there was, you know, periods of really high level trust in the Premier and, and the team, the ministerial team there. And um, we've seen some of the high level ministers go um, for various reasons recently. I mean, what, what comes from here, Nick? You know, this government was called out for absolutely disgraceful behaviour in these areas. Um, what, what comes from here, do you think, with regards to... Um, you know, next steps for demonstrating the change in state labour that the Premier says will come from here? Uh, well, it requires voter vigilance. I mean, we've all got to uh, think about this. As, uh, I mean, the good thing is about modern politics right now, if you think about the, the Teals who campaign on platform of integrity at the federal level uh, and Andrew's making or embracing this integrity reform is... Uh, the polys are hopefully understanding that the electorate is now sick of bad conduct and integrity is a significant political issue now in, in Australian political life. But we must remain, uh, we'll make sure that remains the case. And that means, uh, I think, as voters, we've all, to some extent, got to um, be activists as well and to, and to make sure that, we're, that we keep an eye on our politicians and we, we champion these sorts of things that we feel are, are, are important. The heart of the IBAC report and the heart of Labor in Victoria, I mean, Daniel Andrews is two people, you know. He's a very effective Premier, a good communicator. Uh, there's been some significant progressive policy. Um, but the second Daniel Andrews is the, is the political warrior. You know, he, he's come up through Labor. It's been his career. He played in the muck of all the brand stacking back in the day. There's no doubt about that. Uh, did he engage it himself? Well, it never been proven, but you'd be foolish to say he didn't. Uh, yeah. The, the dirty politics that have been part of the political scene he was very much a part of. Do we expect him to disavow the system in, um, in which he thrived? It's a difficult thing to do, isn't it? Uh, one thing that's also clear, while he's championed integrity reforms, the way that the party reformed itself in the wake of the scandal, they uh, gave control of the Victorian party to the federal branch, uh, which effectively... Uh, vested power in terms of how the, the party would be administered uh, in the hands of uh, the, the, the socialist left, uh, the Albanese um, faction, the Andrews faction, and uh, as a result of that, we, we saw um, a number of uh, uh, those on the right being removed from Parliament, um, their careers cut short and replaced. Uh, so uh, what I'm saying is there's been a very cynical political exercise behind the scenes as well, Andrews, Albanese, uh, the socialist left, have used this clean-up to also get rid of their enemies and entrench their factional power. Uh, and you've got to you've got to be pretty um, clear-eyed about that, while also welcoming the integrity changes. Um, there's like two things two things happening, and I think uh, 
you know, there, 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 there's tension between both things as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we can be sure that the politics aren't going to go any away anytime soon as we lead towards a, a state election, but also with integrity being high on the agenda of the new parliament as well, which um, which sits for the first time this week. These are issues that, you know, should remain um, are foremost in, in voters' minds. It's been great having you on the show this morning, Nick. Thanks so much. Thanks for your time, guys. Cheers. Gotcha. Nick McKenzie there, investigative journalist with The Age and Sydney Morning Herald, talking about the uh, report from IBAC and the Victorian Ombudsman last week into branch stacking and associated what they call grey corruption in the Victorian branch of the ALP. Triple. Ah. It's only been a few months, really, since it started to feel like Melbourne was back. Um, people who had largely worked from home for two years were starting to return to offices. Gigs have been on. Stuff is open. The CBD started to feel bustling again. Uh, but we're also at a moment when some workers are being asked to work from home again if they can or are being asked to wear masks inside but still come to work. While this feels familiar, without health mandates, these decisions are now happening at the workplace level. So what then are our rights as uh, employees and employers in these negotiations. Patrick Turner is with Morris Blackburn Lawyers and is an employment issues expert and it's great to have you here Patrick, thanks. Great to be here. And so we have heard the um, health officer, chief health officer here in Victoria recommending people work from home again if they can and the Paul Kelly at the federal level has asked employers to let staff work from home again. Uh, these are recommendations, uh, not mandates. So, I mean, what's what are you seeing on the ground? How are our employers and employees interpreting these, Patrick? So, uh, in the absence of public health orders um, requiring people to work from home or preventing people from travelling, it really is sort of a case-by-case basis about um, whether employers are encouraging people to work from home. Some of the larger, better-resourced, white-collar industries are obviously... Uh, making noises about allowing people to work from home. Um, many smaller businesses are not. There's obviously some businesses where the work just can't be done from home. So it really does vary depending on industry and uh, the size and resources of the employer. And, and so what, what kind of rights, I mean, obviously it, it you know would vary as, as you just said, but what kind of rights generally does an employee have if they you know, might want to continue working from home or conversely go into the office um, if their employer has kind of a, a different recommendation around the, the best way to work at present? Yeah, so employees need to be quite careful. Uh, employers are able to issue what are called lawful and reasonable directions to employees. Now, in most cases, uh, in the absence of a public health order preventing someone from uh, going into the office or travelling in, then a direction to work out of the office is probably going to be a lawful direction. Uh, whether that's reasonable will depend on the individual circumstances of someone. Um, it, it might include the impact of that person working from home on the employer's operations. If the employee has a specific uh, has an illness or disability, that might be a relevant factor, as are any care responsibilities that might have. Um, and of course, whether or not they can do all their duties from home. There are circumstances where workers can uh, request flexible work arrangements where they have um, a, an illness or caring responsibilities. An employee can only refuse those on reasonable business grounds and similarly for a worker that has a disability uh, they may also be able to seek that reasonable adjustments are made to their role which might include working from home but there are carve-outs there where such an adjustment would impose substantial hardship for an employer. So to summarise there are some discrete circumstances where um, 
people are going to be able to um, request uh, to be able to work from home for certainly on a temporary basis, but maybe for longer term. By and large, though, directions to attend the workplace in the absence of a public health order will probably be something that employees have to follow. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I imagine that then, you know, does that put the employer in a situation if people go to work and they feel like they contracted something, you know, particularly COVID when at work, does that sort of also lead to new areas of discussion um, around providing a safe workplace, Patrick, or is that really not the case if the health orders aren't there? Well, employers have a, a primary duty of care to ensure the health and safety of their workers, and that includes providing a safe working environment. So employers need to be making sure that they are putting in place measures to try to minimise the risk uh, as much as possible, and that might include things like ensuring proper ventilation, asking that people socially distance or wear masks, um, and allow people to stay home, of course, where they're unwell. Um, uh, now, in the event that someone does contract COVID and the employer had failed to take reasonable steps to prevent that from occurring, it may be that they might face a risk of litigation down the track. And, I mean, there might be some instances where an employee, you know, has has decided to work from home or has been instructed to work from home. Let's say, you know, in that scenario, there are, there are some people working in the office. You could imagine that those who are present in the physical environment might have, you know, potentially greater access to, to managers and bosses and that kind of thing. And, and I'm sure there are cases of employees feeling a little bit isolated or stranded at home. And that could be, um, you know, by design or, or it could be because there just aren't the sort of processes in place to make sure that, you know, virtual meetings uh, uh, properly um, become part of kind of workplace practices when people are actually in the office. In those kind of scenarios, I mean, what, what would be your advice to employees who feel they're not really sort of properly connected with the workplace as a result of being out of the office? That's a really difficult issue, and it's one that's going to probably increasingly rear its head. It also raises uh, issues around whether or not there's potential discrimination occurring. Mm. It might be that someone's working from home because they have caring responsibilities. It might be uh, that uh, that person uh, has uh, is caring for someone who's um, unwell. It might be that uh, they are unable to work from the office during pandemic waves due to a specific disability that... Uh, and it simply presents too high a risk for them to go in. If they're then losing out to people who are in the office, it, it does raise um, issues about whether differential treatment is occurring and those people are being subjected to some detriment uh, because they uh, are unable to attend the workplace. So there's potential issues for employees there under discrimination law and what they sh- should ensure that they're doing is making sure that people are treated as much as possible um, equally, that people aren't treated uh, adversely simply because they're working from home. Uh, obviously, that that's going to be an ongoing challenge. I don't think we're going to be going back to a world where everyone is um, uh, working from the office nine to five, Monday to Friday. The, the, the world has changed, so it's a challenge that employees are going to increasingly have to address with their workforces. Yeah, and I mean, do you have suggestions or examples where this has done well, Patrick? Because I imagine a lot of you know, I, I like to think the the best of, of people uh, and you know, employers, employees um, alike, that people want to come to an arrangement that's good for all, good for the business, good for health and safety, good for workers, good for connection, those sorts of things. How, how do you achieve that, though, when, so, when pretty much everyone's in a different circumstance and a, and a different situation when it comes to the, the issues that the, the pandemic throws up? Look, it, it's difficult, but I think it's critical that employers show compassion and empathy for the situations faced by, uh, employ, by their employees. Obviously, uh, 
uh, employees have been through a bit too. Through the pandemic, there's been various challenges for businesses, but those businesses won't operate unless their workforces are safe and that people feel like uh, they're being heard and that their needs are being accommodated uh, in the workplace. And really, it's going to be a competition for, for talent and those employees that are able to move nimbly, that are able to facilitate flexible working arrangements, are going to be able to uh, prevail over those who can't adapt to that. And with such a tight labour market, uh, workers have never had more um, bargaining power to try to argue that uh, and try to force change from employers to ensure that there's greater flexibility. Speaking with Patrick Turner, he's with Morris Blackburn Lawyers and he's an employment issues expert. We're chatting this morning all about the, the current COVID wave and, and the directions from employers, some, some employers to, for people to work from home where possible and what the rights are respectively for workers and um, their employers at this particular time. And I mean, on the issue of, of, of bargaining, there have been calls from, from some new unions to embed flexible working to EBAs. Uh, how do you imagine that might work? I mean, is that a, a good idea that might account for either sort of future shocks and circumstances or simply, as you noted earlier, the the new reality of work life that we're all facing coming out of the pandemic? What unions are pressing for there is simply reflecting the views and the desires of the workers that they represent. Um, So if those workforces are saying what we want as part of bargaining with our employer is we want greater flexibility uh, in terms of where we perform work from, then uh, I think that's a a fantastic thing to push for. Um, I think it's something that you'll see across uh, many more workplaces and um, it it really just emphasises the importance of people to join their union and get involved uh, and get involved in bargaining if it's something you want to press for in your own workplace. So, uh, look, I don't think we'll see this going away anytime soon. The significance of having it included in enterprise agreements is that it becomes binding and enforceable. Uh, Sometimes employer policies aren't worth the paper that they're written on. So having it in an enterprise agreement, which has the force of law, is much more effective uh, and is going to mean that those rights are observed. I mean, at this stage of things, Patrick, what are the kinds of inquiries that you're getting at Morris Blackburn when it comes to flexibility, um, requests from employers and employees alike, the you know willingness or ability of staff being able to be on site, um, whatever their circumstance? What, what are the kinds of inquiries that you're getting? So in, in terms of the inquiries we address, uh, we act for unions and employees um, in the full range of issues that sort of arise in the employment relationship. But the types of stuff that we're fielding a lot lately is people often with a, a general apprehension or concern about COVID um, and, and looking to try to uh, agree to some sort of temporary arrangement with their employer while the wave um, is here or otherwise something longer term. Um, but more broadly, we're certainly seeing uh, a lot of inquiries from people who, who want to fundamentally shift how they've been performing work. Um, that They might have a white-collar job where... Uh, Previously, they were strapped to a desk in the CBD, and what uh, they discovered over the course of the pandemic is actually much of that work, if not the whole of the role, could be performed from home. Now, for a lot of people, what they're actually looking for is a mix. You know, that they want to work from home sometimes and then have a couple of days where they come in to connect with the rest of their team. Um, so, uh, we've been helping with a lot of people in sort of navigating those various issues. There's also been a lot of issues around uh, vaccination. Um, that's an issue that is perhaps starting to die down a little bit, but there's been a number of cases about uh, vaccination directions, whether required by public health orders or um, otherwise just the subject of an employer policy.
One thing that um, is of interest, and I know um, people are discussing as well, is around the location of their work, whether they need to be at a certain partic- you know, particular office for their workplace or whether they can live remotely and travel in sometimes. Do you also find people are inquiring about whether being told that their, their job is located in Melbourne CBD, for instance, um, is, is that something being uh, challenged? Uh, certainly. So often uh, people during, particularly during the lockdowns, uh, a number of people actually left the city and were working from regional areas um, uh, or, or areas outside of easy commute distance from the CBD um, and then were confronted by directions from the employer to return um, to work back in the CBD um, after lockdowns were lifted. Uh, so it is an issue that was faced by a lot of people. Really, it turns on what's in the con- what's in someone's contract of employment. Um, often it can be, if there is an express term requiring someone to work from the CBD, it'll be difficult to resist that. Um, but certainly that's an issue that we've seen in terms of the the advice that people have sought from us. And you can imagine why some employers might be looking at, you know, the, the real estate, their sort of rental costs and, and power and heating, cooling, everything that goes along with that, um, you know, could be significantly reduced if they have more flexible working arrangements and more people working from home or, or different locations. But from your perspective, I mean, what sort of obligation should there be on employers to assist workers to, to work from different locations, whether that be in terms of, you know, software or equipment they might need to do their job optimally? So the pandemic shouldn't be an excuse for employers to just foist the cost and expense of doing business onto workers. Uh, It's critical that workers adequately compensated for expenses that they incur in uh, working from home or setting up uh, home offices, as the case might be. Um, It's also not uh, enough for employers just to uh, say well, um, you'll be able to deduct some of it at tax time. That, that's really just shifting the cost to the taxpayer for expenses that otherwise would be fielded by the employer. So, look, I, I think uh, these issues are still being uh, worked through, but increasingly uh, I suspect what we'll see is that it will be part of people's remuneration package if they're working from home. Uh, that cost and expenses associated from doing that work might be compensated by employers. As I said, there really is a war for talent at the moment, and so employees should be uh, taking this opportunity to uh, to join their unions, increase their bargaining power, and really try to improve the circumstances and their uh, of their and their entitlements at work. Fascinating stuff. Well, it's really good to uh, pick your brains, Patrick, and I know a lot of people are thinking about what they're going to do now because there is that um, emphasis on negotiations in the workplace rather than just the mandate from government. So um, very interesting times we live in. Thanks for your time. Wonderful. Thanks, guys. Um, uh, uh, Patrick Turner there. He's with uh, Morris Blackburn Lawyers and, yeah, speaking there about uh, your rights and responsibilities as staff mostly but also as employers when it comes to working from home when we're not under a mandate, we're under recommendations. It's... Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.